Welcome to the Fallon Forum. Folks, thanks for joining us today. This is uh, Ed Fallon, your host. Here we're doing our best to uh, live stream the whole program today. We're going to give that a shot. And uh, how's your volume there, Chad? Uh, my volume's great. Great. Okay, good. This is Chad Brubaker, folks, in the studio with me today later in the program. Uh, Brad Wilson joining us. We've got a lot of ground to cover today. That seems to happen a lot, doesn't it? And uh, if you are prefer to listen to the show on the radio, we're on two stations in the Des Moines Metro, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM. That's part of La Reina's network. And, uh, yeah, today, so we're going to be covering a lot of ground, as we often do. And um, the uh, where to start? Um, <laughs> I want to start by thanking some of the folks who uh, make this show possible, of course, some of the uh, local folks here at the studio um, and also uh, my uh, my assistant, Sherry Hardina, uh, the folks who take the time to listen, and the stations around the uh, state, around the country as well, here in Iowa, KHOI 89.1 FM in Ames, and in Iowa City, KICI, uh, two great little local radio stations that help uh, spread the word about stuff you don't normally hear on the, uh, you hardly ever hear on commercial radio stations. So anyway, um, so later in the program, we'll be uh, talking about... Um, a lot of agricultural stuff. Digging into the farm bill a bit. We'll also talk about the aftermath of uh, Donald Trump's uh, promise to repeal NAFTA. And we'll look at the announcement uh, over the weekend by executives of Bayer, think Monsanto, uh, and uh, their promise to address the uh, sustainability and climate change solutions. We'll talk about that. But first, I want to dig into a few things here with Chad Brubaker. Um, Chad is a uh, pays. He does something that most Americans, unfortunately, don't do. He pays attention. And uh, he follows a lot of things that are pretty important. I want to talk about – I know the first, first thing we talked about discussing was meat inspections. And that sounds boring, <laughs> but it's not. Uh, but first, let's talk about a couple other things. You're a libertarian. Yeah, I run for House 43. You, okay. And um, you have probably noticed that the uh, Libertarian Party's uh, gubernatorial candidate, Jake Porter, who is polling between 7 and, what, 10 percent? Uh, that was before he was excluded from the debates. Did the exclusion from the debates by the corporate media help him? Uh, I think it helped him a lot. He got a ton of press coverage. And also, at least with the debate at like DMACC, uh, that was at a public building. That was a violation of Iowa Code. How did he get press coverage by the corporate media after the corporate media denied him access to the debates? <sighs> I didn't see anything in the register. So they did just all kinds of uh, interviews with him. Okay. Good and and uh, and there was some favorable bounce from that. Yeah, and again, I'm 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 not endorsing any candidate here. I'm saying that fairness is uh, a a is is part of the foundation that makes America work when we work. <laughs> and uh, you have a you have a party that has equal ballot access to the Democratic and Republican parties. A party that uh, has fielded candidates that have done reasonably well in recent elections, enough to get that status. It wasn't equal ballot access. Uh, all of our primary write-in votes were uh -huh. denied. Like, we, they still haven't been published. Oh, really? Oh, okay. My bad. They, they set up a 35% rule so that we had to get attain 35% of the Gary Johnson total from the 2016 general. Who set that up? This is actually set up by the Administrative Rules Committee back in the early 2000s. Okay. And just... It sprung on us this year. Um, it's actually before the Iowa Supreme Court, but they're not going to rule on it because it's, it's mathematically impossible because we have less libertarians registered than Gary Johnson voters in 2016. <laughs> so, so we were denied all write-in votes. 
Okay, but you do you you do have you do know who your you do know who the registered libertarians are in the state. Oh yeah, yeah. Now how are the other? I know the Green Party also has some limited, or maybe they lost it actually. They they had some access as well. Uh, because well, they, they don't have major party status, but they right. they are organized. Yeah. You guys somewhere. have major party status. Yeah. They have uh, they're on the uh, they're on the voter registration card. So if you register as a Green, you that that appears on your voter registration card. But yeah. I imagine that's a fairly small universe compared to where the libertarians are these days. I have no clue what what they have for criteria for yeah. registration card. I, I <laughs> okay. So what what was the uh, what, and again this wasn't just the register. Other it was KCCI. It was um, it was the I, state of Iowa. The state of Iowa denied Jake Porter to demate at DMAC, which was a public building, which was a violation of Iowa Code seven twenty one. Wait now, um, well, what, what uh, he was denied. By by the by the by the college by by DMAC, because the corporate media decided he was not going to be allowed to participate in the debates, which was a violation of Iowa's misconduct in office law. You can't use a public building for exclusionary purposes like that in a campaign. Okay, but the but the corporate media have the right to deny somebody to be in a debate, but they don't have a right to do that if the debate is held in a public place. Is that what you're saying? Well, it, it, the fact that it was that the forum was held in the public building violated the law. Whether they televised it or not is a different issue. Okay, but uh, yeah, there. Okay, so what's going to be done? Is there is there legal action being taken in response to that? Uh, under the Iowa Constitution, about the only thing you can do is complain to the Iowa House. They'd have to impeach the governor, and <laughs> and then the Iowa Senate, even if they convicted her, what, what are they going to do other than give her a written reprimand? I, that, yeah. that, that, that's your. So that's there's, all you can no, do. there's no disincentive for that to occur next time and the time after that, but yeah. not unless she gets impeached. Do you what? <laughs> what was the uh, rationale by let's take the Des Moines Register and including uh, Jake Porter from the debate? They keep changing their story. Okay. Uh, well, what, one of the things – Talk that, us through the, the, the various uh, manifestations of it. Well, one of the things that's most bothering was in April of 2017 when you filled out your Iowa Form 1040 tax return. You noticed there were Republicans and Democrats on there but not Libertarians, which had reached major party status. So we were excluded from the tax checkoff in April 2017, even though Republicans and Democrats were recertified. And then they used that us not getting that money against us saying, oh, you didn't raise enough money. <laughs> who um, who made that decision? Finger pointing. No, nobody will admit to doing it. They, right. they, they were over. If you look at the the Iowa form ten forty from April twenty seventeen that's published out there, I think on the revision PDF it has like number nineteen. So they made nineteen revisions on it. They, they made sure that the Republicans and Democrats still had major party access to keep them on the tax checkoff, but they didn't bother to add the well, Libertarians. Ultimately, somebody made that choice at the Department of Revenue. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Under the with the with the encouragement of uh, Governor Reynolds, perhaps. We're still figuring out exactly what the communication was. Are you getting cooperation from the state? Are they sharing their communications on this? Or no? no. It, it's it's <laughs> so absurd that the Iowa. Uh, Iowa Code 68A, uh, which is the tax checkoff in Election Campaign Finance Act, the Election Campaign Finance Board claims they don't have jurisdiction to investigate if they entirely leave a major party off yeah. of the tax checkoff, which is insane. Okay, so so one of the reasons was that the uh, Libertarians uh, didn't raise enough – the uh, Libertarian candidate Jake Porter in this case didn't raise enough money to justify being uh, included in the debate. Was that one of their uh, – for, for like the, the, the ones that like at private buildings, yeah, that was one of the criteria I've heard. Okay. I, they well, they, they well, keep well, changing their the story. 
they wanted him to be polling at a certain percentage, even though no one actually really had a, a poll with Jacob in that, that 7% poll, which is, I don't know really how widely it, it was out there. Um, I, I personally, uh, I've received a lot of calls to my house asking me to, you know, do surveys about the campaign. Jake's not mentioned in those. <laughs> so, I mean, there's yeah. like this impression like he's not a candidate, which is kind of offensive. But Yeah. Well, and my suspicion is that uh, he is polling if, – if he wasn't on the ballot, his supporters might be evenly split with, between the Republican and Democratic nominees. I'm just – this is a wild guess. I, I think he's polling a lot higher with independents. And I think the really interesting race is, is Marco's race. Um, I think he's polling at least at 30 which against race Tom. Is that? That's the, that's the attorney general, Marco Batega. He's running against uh, Tom Miller, the Democrat, and the Republicans okay. didn't put anybody in the race. Really? Yeah. So really, the Republicans did, nominated no one? Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's is Miller that powerful that he can scare off the other major party? <laughs> Completely. <Apparently. laughs> yeah. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe Republicans are happy with him. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what their rationale is. I'm not going to put words in their mouth. Yeah. All right. Well, um, this is interesting. So uh, other than just trying to learn more about why Porter was excluded and whether or not a law was violated, where there's, you know, again, based on the communications you receive from the powers that be, what it says about their decision to hold the debate in a public place when clearly the Iowa Code says you can't do that and exclude somebody. You know, I, I, where do you think this is going to end up? Uh, unless the House impeaches Kim Reynolds, I don't see it going anywhere. I mean, I, 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 I think this is on her. She's the governor. She, yeah. she, she made the shot. I mean, you, you can, you know, say, you know, some county or DMAC official or somebody did, you know, Aiden abetted it, but really it's on her. That would imply to me that uh, Reynolds is more concerned about uh, that, about Porter – um, siphoning off votes from potential Republican voters. I don't think that's true. I, th- I think Marco Batagia especially is getting a lot of like Bernie Democrats that are kind of tired and fed up with Tom Miller. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's bar- bipartisan. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Okay, we're going to take a very short break here, folks, to hear from some of the uh, the uh, again some of the other folks that make this program possible. And when we come back, uh, we're going to switch gears and talk about Facebook for a little tiny bit because it's not worth spending too much time discussing Facebook, says he during his live stream. Uh, and then we'll talk more about meat inspection requirements and how they are penalizing small operators. Uh, we'll be back in a minute. And we're going to keep the live stream running while we go to this break. Gateway Market and Cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses, and hand-selected wines and craft beer. Visit the Lively Cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food. Great community. Times are tough. And most people are just trying to make their cars last a little bit longer. That's why you should know about Sargent's Garage in Des Moines. You can trust Sargent's to make the right diagnosis and give you a fair price. Whether it's a routine oil change or a major repair, Sargent's always does outstanding work. So don't give up on that old car just yet. Call Sargent's Garage at 246-8149. That's 246-8149. 
Community CPA and Associates, with locations in Des Moines and Coralville, is the perfect place to go for all of your tax and accounting needs. Community CPA offers a wide array of services, from tax planning to business IT solutions. Call Community CPA today at 515-288-3188 or visit www.communitycpa.com for more information. Hi folks, it's Ed Fallon reminding you that you can eat Iowa-grown food all winter long at Hawk Restaurant in Des Moines East Village. Over 90% of the food served at Hawk comes from Iowa farms and their dishes are amazing. I once brought a guy there from New York. And he was blown away by the experience. He said it was like any fine dining you'd enjoy in Greenwich Village, but at one-fourth the price. So don't go all the way to to New York City when you can enjoy gourmet dining prepared with Iowa-grown food at Hawk Restaurant in Des Moines East Village. Ritual Cafe is located at 13th and Locust in beautiful downtown Des Moines. It's a great place for coffee, tea, smoothies, and a full vegetarian menu. Ritual Cafe also features music on the weekends. For more information, call Ritual Cafe at 515-288-4872. That's 515-288-4872. When it's time to entertain, think of Gateway Market to handle all the details. Gateway offers a wide variety of stress-free options like our cut-to-order cheese and charcuterie and delicious olive bar and a wide variety of chef-prepared dips and spreads. Or let our catering team take care of the entire event, right down to the wine and beer pairings. Our expert floral designers can even customize perfect centerpieces. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more information. Gateway Market. Good food, great entertaining. Okay, we're back live on the air. This is Ed Fallon, your host, Chad Brubaker, in the studio with me. Later in the program, Brad Wilson joining us to talk uh, various angles on farm policy. Uh, But first, um, let's go back to our conversation with Chad. I want to talk a little bit about Facebook. Um, I just can't. (laughs) I can't believe. uh, You know, I understand. Okay, they had a problem. Vladimir, you know, Putin kind of uh, misused Facebook to basically tilt the election to Donald Trump, so it goes, uh, so the story goes. Um, and so they've responded by, uh, they've gone overboard. They've gone over the top. Uh, there's a Facebook advertisement um, celebrating Hispanic Heritage Month from a health insurance company. Uh, that's been, uh, that's been um, eliminated by Facebook. Uh, what else? A professional women's club showcasing black dolls so children can see, quote, beautiful reflections of themselves. That's a non-starter. Um, prostate cancer screenings for African-American men. Uh, a pledge in Spanish for fast loan pre-approval. These are all uh, among the dozens of ads that have been uh, chastised and eliminated by Facebook for uh, allegations of being too political. Uh, it's uh, incredible. And what some observers are saying, that it seems like when the ads mention African-American, Latino, Hispanic, Mexican, women, or LGBT, uh, then those are the ones that got, to, got axed, which is incredible. Uh, what, do you, what do you make of this, Chad? Uh, I, I think Facebook would well, help. You're, you're a libertarian. You, want, you, want, you, don't, you don't want this to happen, do you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, Facebook has a First Amendment right to... You know, do what they want as a private corporation, but I, I don't think this is helping out their, their public image here. They're not gaining advertisers off of this. 
I think it would probably help them to kind of change their model to more what Twitter has, where they'll like maybe flag something that might think is objectionable. But it, it's on the user whether they want to filter that flagged material instead of just completely censoring it. Yeah. That, that, that would eliminate a lot of the problem. Yeah. But, I mean, this has got to be backfiring in a big way. I mean, it just seems like Facebook is continuing to take a, a, a gut punch after one gut punch after another, and a lot of it through their own mistakes. So I don't know where this resolves. Yeah, and it's sad because Facebook is a – I mean, they have like a billion-dollar data center here uh, up in Altoona, and, yeah. and it's growing. I, I, from what I've heard, it's their, their cold storage facility for like their like old video. Like after it isn't played for like a couple months, they'll, they'll store it over here. So they're actually, from what I hear, going to start building out some uh, data science teams to like like actual programming jobs. So not not just electricians. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's a ma- it's, it's a massive and hideously ugly building, but I, I guess yeah. it's a. Uh, it's well, which a, eats a lot of energy. Sure. Yeah. All right. Well, and one reason they wanted to be in Iowa was they wanted to get it from the industrial wind farms that are popping up everywhere. Yeah. So, anyway. Warren Buffett gets his yeah. two cents. American. <laughs> More of the two cents, yeah. Okay. So um, before, I, I wanna, we want to talk about meat inspections and how those are impacting small operators and really playing into the pockets of the big, the, the big uh, food conglomerates. Yeah. That'll be a good segue into our next next segment as well. So yeah, go ahead. Tell tell us what you know about that. Uh, so my dad's a beef producer, you know, Iowa cattleman, uh, and just I've noticed this over the past twenty years that uh, the inspection rules requiring a full time meat inspector uh, whenever you do slaughter has shut down almost all of the local processors because like I want to say Amos like they were doing slaughter one day a week because that's all they could afford the inspector for. And and what's that done is it's it's created monopolies on the packing, and since 2015, a lot of the packers have moved out of Iowa, at least in beef, uh, over to Nebraska and uh, Illinois. So not only are we losing the packers, we're losing all the revenue off the packing for tax purposes, which is really nailing the Iowa taxpayer that all that that beef processing revenue isn't going into state coffers, even though the beef is being grown here in Iowa. So, uh, are you seeing every, every every day that a meat packing facility is operational, whether it's a huge one or a small meat locker? On days they do slaughter, they need a full time inspector if okay. they're going to do resale. If, okay, if so it's not for resale, if it's for personal use, like you you you, slaughter, you, you slaughtered a deer and and you want that process for your personal or use, they don't need chickens. one. Yeah, or, or yeah, or, or yeah. If it's not for resale, they don't need one. But if it is for resale, which right. is most local commerce, so that would be lockers as well as yeah. processing plants. Yeah, anybody okay. that's going to sell it for resale, like Hy-Vee, if you want your meat in Hy-Vee, it has to be have a full time federal inspector. Even though that nowadays with technology, we can put cameras in, in their slaughter room. They they can you know have yeah. inspections. It's not a okay. So this is a legitimate health concern, obviously. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, we don't want this Upton Sinclair, you know, what's in the hot dog stuff going on. But <laughs> right. Or all the, it, all the scares around salmonella, though. you know. Because it's the Monopoly packers that love this rule because it keeps out the little guy. Yeah. And what, what is it? Is it pretty pricey to have a full-time inspector on facility? I, I haven't price compared, but yeah. I, I can't imagine it's cheap. So how, how, many, how many small processors have we lost? How many small processors are left? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I can't think of one. I would say, say even the Indianola meat locker shut down a couple of years ago. So this is this is bad. Yeah. And and where again, is there a balance between safety and and appropriate levels of regulation and trying to, you know, uh, respect the, uh, the, uh, the 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 cost that to the uh, small producers so they can actually afford I mean, this? They can put a camera in there 24-7. So I, I don't see what. Has that been proposed? 
Uh, I, I don't know what – and this is a federal issue, I think. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. um, I, I know all the libertarian candidates are are interested in doing this. I want to say uh, – who's running against Loebsack? Uh, Peters. He's I, a Republican. Yeah, I, I know he's really interested in this issue. Um, what kind of response are, are, are folks getting when they raise this issue? Uh, they're like, huh. Because they see a lot of the, the consolidation uh, with, with some of these, these larger, I guess you'd call them factory farms. Well, the reason why is because there's a consolidation in who they're selling to. Right. They, they only have one market to sell to. That's Tyson or someone like that. Yeah. And, and so, but I, I'm guessing that there's a lot of people around the state who are affected by this. Yeah, yeah, all, 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 all meat producers. And, and meat producers are not helped by ethanol. That raises their corn price, which raises their input costs. Right. So, so when they say ethanol is good for farmers, it's not good for the meat it's producers. It's good for corn farmers. Oh, yeah. But if you're a corn farmer who also raises hogs or cattle, then it's kind of a wash. But a lot of, uh, a lot of corn farmers, they, they just cash rent their land. They don't even farm. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah, you're still farming whether you're renting or owning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but I mean, they don't have livestock operations. They they, they collect a check from gotcha. the, the government for their farm subsidies, and they rent their land out. And yeah, that's that's a that's a, a darn good segue into what we're going to be talking about in a few minutes. Um, so, what what do you what's the core message here in terms of what people should know and what they can do? Uh, for what again? Uh, about, about the meat inspection issue, the, the fact that they are. Uh, they need to remove the full time inspector rule for small processors so you can have you know, local processing. And, right. and, and so the, 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 the cry from, you know, from the, those who support that is going to be oh, you're going to be, jam- you're, you're going to be uh, compromising safety. We won't be able to find the bad operators. We'll miss lots of problems, even with cameras. So that's, that's, I kind of think that's what you'll be hearing. Well, As long as it stays within the state borders, it shouldn't be a federal issue. And you have a county health inspector that inspects every other restaurant in town. They can inspect them just as well. There's no – there's nothing special about a meat processor. But then they wouldn't be the full-time. Yeah, but but you don't don't have a full-time inspector, you know, for your sushi chef when when you go for sushi either, so. (laughs) (laughs) For those who are inclined to eat sushi – I, only, I mean, I'm just not a fan. Uh. <laughs> so anyway, uh, the um, the uh, again, right now we have a situation where effectively the small producers have been put out of business. Oh, the so, small processors, yeah. small processors, which, processors which is which, right. which is which is consolidated all of the the cell markets that the meat producers can sell to to just a few like Tyson down in Bentonville, and all the profits are going down to Bentonville and. Not not to Iowa tax coffers because yeah. a lot of the slaughter is not happening here in Iowa. Yeah, is there a way to track the origin of that uh, decision? Is, is, I mean, is it easy to say, "Aha, we can point a finger at Walmart or or you know Conagra or Bill Sack"? Really? Well, I mean, he was the Secretary of Agriculture when a lot of the major beef packing plants were consolidated and kicked out of Iowa. He didn't do anything. Did he not do anything, or did he facilitate the um, the? Uh, decision that led to them being kicked out of Iowa. I didn't see any resistance from the USDA, and I also didn't see any resistance from the Iowa Attorney General's office, which should have put his foot down under Iowa's monopoly law and said, hey, wait a second, this doesn't seem right that you're buying out the major beef packing plants in Iowa and shutting them down. Hmm. All right. Well, it'll be interesting to see where this goes, if anywhere. It sounds like uh, uh, the big challenge is people getting, you need to understand what has happened, and at this point, how do you turn? How do you turn the clock back on that? That's that's a yeah, and especially with like farm to table demand. I 
I, I don't see why it's an issue. I mean, people want that local beef. Yeah. Well, people are getting around that by buying directly from farmers or, yeah. or, or by, by, uh, by having a, a CSA. Or going to farmers markets. I, mean, I imagine those farmers markets. You still yeah, have to but be they inspector. have to have the full time meat inspector. I mean, well, I, I guess I guess in private cell, in certain situations, they can do it. But they have to they have, yeah, they have, I, to, they have to game the system. They but, can't just like go to Hy-Vee and buy it. Right. But I can't imagine that the, the the small producers I see at the Des Moines farmers market have gone through that entire regulatory nightmare. Uh, and still been able to afford the, to sell their products at a price anybody can afford. I don't know that all of them are complying with federal regulation <laughs> because it, because it's only on slaughter. It's not on processing. Once once the carcass has been harvested, um, you know what they do to it afterwards is is not right. as regulated. So yeah. So maybe that's how this is going to write itself is for more people to begin to just purchase directly. But that's e- either that or High V and Fairway and a lot of these uh or probably even Whole Foods band together and just start getting their own license. Hmm. All right. Ah, interesting stuff. Okay, folks, uh we're going to take a, a short break here to hear from uh, uh some of the uh folks affiliated with Lorena. Again, thanks to Lorena 1260 AM and 96.5 FM for uh, the opportunity to broadcast this program here in Central Iowa. Uh, thanks to KHOI 89.1 in Ames, to uh, KICI in Iowa City, to KIPI, I believe I have the number right, in Fayette, Missouri, and to WHIV in New Orleans. We'll be back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. All right, hey, welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon, your host here, uh, talking now with Brad Wilson about uh, farm policy. Um, Wanted to start with a little bit of news. Um, yeah, so uh, we had the World Food Prize in uh, Iowa last week. Um, big event. Uh, over a thousand people showed up to celebrate that, and about twenty people showed up to protest it because of the focus on GMOs and big ag. And um, the, uh, you know, I, I think the I think Monsanto now bear and other supporters of the direction that big ag is taking are sensitive to the criticisms about their uh, their impact on sustainable agriculture uh, and the growing concern about climate change. And so there's a pushback. Um, the executives of both uh, Bayer and Corteva say that they, um, they're making sure that their companies will help find sustainability and climate change solutions. What do you think that means, Brad? What, is a, what does a climate change solution look like coming from a seed-slash-chemical company? Yeah, uh, I guess I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to well, guess. Well, it, it has to do with selling inputs uh, to farmers. Um, you know, the uh, that whole issue is uh, on the input side of agriculture, of, of agribusiness, of what farmers buy. And, and uh, there's, a, there's a complex of uh, business, uh, agribusinesses, very highly concentrated, selling to farmers that's on that side. And we... Uh, that's one one uh, kind of farm issue that's very important. Well, they're, they're selling seeds, and then they're also selling chemicals to yes. make that those seeds absolutely need in order to thrive. Yes. Yeah. And a lot of this, uh, you know, you know, originally, uh, you know, came to be around the importance of increasing yields, and that's even referenced in this article because they, uh, let's see, um, Collins with. Uh, I think he's with um, Corteva. Yes, says that uh, we're we're projecting a nine billion nine billion a population of nine billion by 2050, and we'll need to double food production to feed 
all those people. Uh, those are yes. crazy assumptions. Um, <laughs> well, um, <laughs> that, that the Earth can even sustain nine billion people. Yes, is, yeah. is, is, is an amazing assumption. Uh, yeah, part of the issue is uh, a huge part of the issue is just uh, uh, to talk about population and not just to take uh, you know huge increases in population as a given. But you know to talk about that as well. Yeah. You know, on the farm side of it, uh, you know, in terms of feeding the world. Uh, you know, my take on that is just that, you know, that's the wrong question. The, the question isn't really how do you how do we f- have enough quantity to feed the world, which is what they're saying. Right. The question is, how, uh, how do we pay the world? Pay the world. What so that mean? comes back actually to the farm way. But anyway, in other words, we have these worlds, uh, you know, the farmers of the world uh, being underpaid. And part of the way they're underpaid is because we have overproduction. And so with overproduction uh, – it drives down prices, and therefore, uh, farmers of the world are don't have enough money. And then uh, the rural regions, which are dependent upon those farm economies, then they're poor. So we find that uh, in, in some statistics not that long ago, 80% of the quote-unquote undernourished are rural. Globally, 70, globally. Globally, yeah. yeah. And 70, 75% uh, of the uh, underweight children in sub-Saharan Africa are farm kids. Hmm. 70% of the population of least developed countries are rural. Okay, so, and that's because yeah. they're not able to, are they, are they, I mean, you think of a lot of the folks who are farming in, in, in poorer countries are, are subsistence farming. So is that is that the case? Are they just they're, not able to they're, survive? They're not, making, with, they're not making money. Their whole economies are not making money. Their whole countries are not making money. Yeah. And it comes back, uh, and a big influence on that is the farm bill as well as the trade policies. Okay. Because the U.S. is the dominant exporter in the world. You know, for years we've had you know uh, export uh, share for corn and soybeans uh, in uh, you know seventy percent to even to ninety percent hmm. of the whole world. That left a very small percentage for Europe. Right. As a whole, so I mean, uh, so then when we set the prices down, uh, then that was a problem. And and you know, my take on it is, uh, and that of others in the family farm movement, which is where I come from, uh, which is a, a, a movement focused on justice, economic justice for farmers. That's the core issue, and that's and the core issue. I mean, in the a, farm fa- a fair price, among other things. Yes, yeah. fair price is how farmers talk about it. That's yeah. the primary worry. So that's. Uh, what what we've had in the United States is the opposite of what OPEC did when they started managing supply and raising oil prices. We have overproduced and lowered our farm prices, even though we were, uh, you know, had a bigger share than OPEC and we could have charged more. Right, right, right. Yeah. And so we have this uh, <clears throat> this thing with Mexico, and people talk about immigration. Well, uh, why should we in Iowa lose money on corn exports to Mexico? To then cause to run uh, you know several million farmers out of business in Mexico, you know to then have be, have this kind of a contribution to the immigration yeah. issue. Yeah, and I want to talk more about that too. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, just to just to wrap up this component, yeah. though. I mean, uh, Bear and Monsanto talk about uh, they get climate change. I give them credit for understanding that climate change is real and anthropogenic, man-made. But uh, their solution is what they call innovation, uh, new tools. Products that can reduce livestock greenhouse gas emissions. It's all focused on a very large-scale agricultural model that depends more and more on technology, and in particular, more and more on genetically modified technologies. That, that's my take on it. Would that be yours as well? You know, yeah. And and uh, and I would say that uh, there's another big, big thing, kind of like climate change, 
that that is hitting our that has been growing, and we have to address it also. And that is, uh, I actually like to use there's a uh, Lewis Mumford's term, the mega machine. You know, the the Manhattan Project that invented the atom bomb. You know, was putting together all of this. Uh, these brilliant minds and, and money to build the atom bomb, you know. Well, uh, he also said you can't take that same thing. He called it mega techniques. You can't do the mega approach since it's a power complex and it fosters a power complex and it's authoritarian. You can't do that to try to fix a city, the, the neighbors in a city, and you can't do it to fix agriculture. It's right. an inappropriate technology. So there's this other huge thing of growing, which is associated with growing authoritarianism, which is the power complex, and so they're giving a solution, which is, yeah, we're going to come through and we'll give you a Manhattan Project on, you know, more overproduction. Right. Well, it, it's, it's, okay. it, it's, it's going to starve people. Okay. So uh, In the short run. In the short run. As it has been doing for decades. But, yeah, because, I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't know what the percentage of uh, folks who are hungry globally is or the percentage of uh, folks who are starving, but I, I, I don't believe it's gone down. A lot, if at all. And, uh, you know, the, I, I, I should have my data on that, but uh, that's my impression. It's been going on so long that even to start paying farmers fairly has problems mm. because there's, you know, they, they lack infrastructure and they, they can't take advantage of it as much as we saw in like 2007, yeah. 2008. So onto the farm bill. I mean, the farm bill is supposed to be, I mean, back when, I, I, I mean, back when Henry Wallace conceived an approach to uh, to uh, support for farmers back in the depression era, uh, it was the idea was to give uh, give farmers a, an assurance that in a bad year there will still be a basic uh, level of income to allow you to keep going. My how things have changed since then. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I'm glad you mentioned Henry Wallace. Uh, uh, you know, when you talk about the the input side, like on the GMO issue, you're talking people like to talk about Norman Borlaug, but. Henry Wallace is on the output side. It's really a bigger side, and that's that's a this huge thing that gets less attention. Um, but anyway, I would summarize the farm bill this way, and this is also uh, I, I get some of this from uh, an agricultural economist by the name of Daryl Ray, and Harvard Schaefer out at APAC uh, Agricultural Policy Analysis Center. Anyway, and so they. They uh, focus on, uh, they say, well, there's a core problem, and the problem is the failure of free markets. And, and, and the failure occurs on both the supply side and the demand side, that is, both the farmer side and the consumer and industry side, for agriculture. So he focuses, it's all for, about agriculture and the, how you need market management. And so what the, real, the original Farm Bill did, the main thing it did was market management. Okay. And it was a problem that didn't start in the Great Depression. It was a problem that started, sure. we could see it for 60 years before then, and we've been able to see it ever since. And it's projected ahead another 10 years in the CBO and USDA projections for the farm economy. So the, the, the problem is, that, is really built into the system right now. And the farm, and the farm, and right now the farm bill. I mean, it's been going through a bunch of changes, uh, and you know, maybe you could summarize those. My my general impression, from a layman's point of view, is that uh, you know we we shifted from direct subsidies to an insurance based uh, system that uh, does not discriminate between large and small farmers, uh, and so a lot of really really wealthy farmers are getting a big chunk of change from the farm bill, and that's a little different from my. 
analysis of it. And, and probably not as strong as your analysis, so go, um, go for it. Uh, well, um, so I, I usually look back a, l- a little farther for it in the Farm Bill. So we had a period of time in the Farm Bill where they established uh, minimum price floors right? Uh, combined with supply management. And we had programs for uh, what people think of today as the subsidized crops, the, the main field crops. Corn, soybeans, cotton, uh, Yeah, sugar, but also yeah. we had programs for fruits and vegetables right. and, for, and for dairy and other kinds of livestock and livestock products. But anyway, um, in, it was the crisis, I think, of, of the Great Depression that, led, that gave the political will to do something that it was needed for a long time before that, 60 years earlier. Uh, and, and that was to create the Farm Bill. And then it was the pressure of the crisis of World War II where they, they, the banking committees took the Farm Bill as an economic stimulus, not a government spending stimulus, but a, a private sector stimulus of raising the price floor to uh, a standard that was uh, what they call 90 percent of parity with a goal of parity. To, which was uh, a goal of meaning fairness, right? As in which, compare and so forth, and and that so was, that's a good so thing. they had that for about eleven years, nineteen forty two to nineteen fifty two, and during that year, agriculture as a whole got achieved one hundred percent of parity, right? And you can measure that with a lot of different kinds of economic statistics. Yeah. Then in in fifty three, nineteen fifty three, they started lowering the price floor down, and they lowered it down for eight years without it, without any subsidies. And then, starting in 1961, in order as they were lowering it down even more, they added subsidies. Yeah. And so the, the real issue is this. And so as they got, as they went on and lowered it down more and more, and then in 1995 was the last year of, of the price floors, and then they ended them for most of the major crops. Uh, and then they said in 1996 Farm Bill, we're also going to end all the subsidies. That's what the Republicans said, leading that, and what President Clinton, the Democrat, signed. <laughs> and and um, and then that immediately failed. Right. And they had four emergency farm bills in four years, in 1998, 99, 2000, and 2001, to pour in more money instead of going You're back going to back to what was working. Yeah, right, right. A, a much cheaper program. Yeah. A much cheaper program. Wow. So anyway, and then we get these new kinds of subsidies that you mentioned, and, um, and they make farmers gamble between them. You know, you make a choice for the in twenty after the twenty fourteen farm bill between the the ARC program, which is a, a lot similar to a revenue insurance program, and there's also the crop insurance, which is a, a crop revenue insurance. It also includes the price aspect. The, uh, it's a there's a subsidy in there, not just insurance for hail damage and things like that. And then the the PLC price loss coverage is is another one. So ARC and PLC PLC is like the older programs, and when you need more. You get more. That makes sense. Yeah, but the newer, but the ARC program. Yeah, it's a floating uh, right. thing. So they say, well, if the free market says, uh, you know, it's good to be low, then uh, we'll assume you're okay. <laughs> the free market says it's okay to be high. Well, then we'll say that's okay. Yeah. If it's going downhill, we'll say that's bad. If it's going uphill, we'll say that's good. Let me take a short yeah. break here, Brad. Uh, I do want to come back to this conversation. Yeah. I want to take a second to thank uh, Ritual Cafe, one of our local business proponents here in Des Moines. They're located at 13th and uh, Locust in downtown Des Moines, Fair Trade Coffee, Fair Trade Tea, and a great uh, line of vegetarian menu items. Thanks also to Catering by Sid. Sid Cohn uses fresh local ingredients in season, and every one of her catering arrangements is custom-made. That's Catering by CYD, Catering by Sid. Uh, thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been treating large and small animals alike for 30 years at Story County Veterinary Clinic. 
And uh, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, too, at, uh, at uh, 20th and Woodland in the uh, Sherman Hill neighborhood. Uh, a grocery store and also a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. And they've got a catering service as well. And finally, I uh, want to recognize the uh, Pillars of Promise program. This is um, They're hosting an inform- informational meeting tomorrow, Tuesday, October 23rd from 6 to 7.30 p.m. That will be at North High School. Uh, if you go, you'll learn more about their plans for a new community center on 9th Street. Uh, that includes uh, soccer fields for tournaments as well. More information about that, contact uh, Rhonda Kaysen at 867, uh, or I think 515-867-6867, Okay, uh, back to our conversation, Brad. Um, just to wrap up the discussion of the farm bill, I mean, we, we could probably talk about this for hours and, and probably should. But the um, recently there's been a proposal to disassociate the food stamp, well, now called the SNAP program, the Supp- Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, from... The uh, farm subsidy, farm, farm, you know, farm program itself, and uh, what's your thought on that? Uh, that's that's bad for farmers. <laughs> I mean, how, just to speak on that side, as yeah, well as how, for the. For I was going to say, how, how is it for for hungry folks? As well yeah. as for the hungry, it's, okay. Yeah. Why? Why is it bad? Well, because you know, you put the two together, and then you can, uh, then you can hopefully, you know, pass something. Uh, Pass something. So that, politically, it's easy. Yeah. It's easier to get something accomplished politically if farmers and the poor get together. Yeah, we have common interests. Yeah, Food. In, outside of the farm bill, it's something you know. It's a minimum wage and labor laws and things like that that are needed. And if you had better ones of those, that's market management. Then you wouldn't need as many food stamps. If you had better antitrust law and enforcement, if you had better la- uh, inter- international trade agreements. All those things are, are kinds of market management, and we're going to be going in there with Na- NAFTA questions and so forth. So it's, it's similar to the Farm Bill, except only the food stamp part is in the Farm Bill, and the others are maybe in Congress, but they're outside of, uh, outside of the Farm co- uh, the Ag Committee. But in, mm. in the Farm's case, both the subsidies that are not needed at all if you have, if you have good price floors and the, and the market management, they're both inside the Farm Bill. You can do them yeah. both. My thought was that if you, if you separated them, the farm bill would become even much more focused on supporting big farms and corporate ag, and the SNAP program would do even less for people who are hungry. That's that's my impression, just uh, from what little I know about politics. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I have to say one other thing too that uh, while uh, I'm not a supporter of us going getting bigger and bigger farms, uh, as we get bigger farms, they. The income has gone down so that you have to be bigger to be the same economic size. Right. If you were 160 acres back in the 40s, you might have to be five or 600 acres to be the same size. Right, yeah. With much less and, – and also at the same time losing your livestock because of cheap prices, subsidizing CAFOs. That's the big CAFO subsidy that people don't talk about. Yeah. The low prices caused by the lack of a price floor. To, to uh, for that where farmers are forced to pay the subsidy. Farmers pay the subsidy of low prices that, that agribusiness gets, uh, and and, K, and and they lose their own livestock in the process. To CAFOs. Yeah. Wow. Um, I, yeah, and I would love to talk more about CAFOs, but we did, we did promise we discuss NAFTA a little sure. bit. Uh, I mean, Don, Donald Trump said, I think it's one reason he won some of the Rust Belt states. He said, I'm going to get rid of NAFTA, and he has. Gotten rid of the name NAFTA. <laughs> what you, what's your take on what's actually happened with the new trade deals with Canada and Mexico? Well, uh, you know he he uh, he also ended the TPP. 
So from the standpoint of the, the failure for yeah. agriculture, where free markets fail and free trade that is based on free markets, then uh, both of those things sounded good, Mr. Trump, you know. And both sounds good, but what does it really mean? You know, and earlier on, I heard him talking about, you know, oh yeah, free markets. You know, so he didn't really. You know, what he means by fixing NAFTA is this different. So what we have is, for example, in the case of dairy with Canada, uh, he's lowered uh, milk prices in North America as a whole, and that's supposed to be a benefit for. You know, and over there's more going to be more overproduction of milk in North America, and that's supposed to be good for American farmers. Well, I don't well, think so. There's going to be more, there's going to be overproduction because farmers have to have to raise more in order to Canada achieve. will produce more. Yeah, well, not just Canada, but I mean, we're talking about. Oh uh, yeah, but I mean, well, we've already got a severe dairy crisis here. But then yeah. Mexico, you know, we're already losing money on corn to Mexico most of the time, and then, you know, th- there's nothing fixed that in, yeah. in these deals. Well, I mean, the, the I would say that NAFTA has helped the, especially the larger corn producers in Iowa, but it's decimated the indigenous corn producers in Mexico. Is that well, fair enough, or would you have a different? Uh, l- let me just clarify my position a little okay. bit more on that in how I'm how I talk about it differently than you do. Okay, and that is, uh, it's very common today to say. Uh, you know, we need to divide farmers between the good farmers and the bad farmers in various ways. You know, if you're a food farmer, you're better. If you're a food and vegetable farmer, you're better. You know, if you're uh, – but anyway, so – and if you're a big farmer, you're bad. But the big distinction is not between different kinds of farmers. The big distinction is between f- all farmers and agribusiness, the buyers. So the bigger the farmer, the bigger the reduction you have, the bigger the money that t- is taken away from you and given to agribusiness. Hmm. Okay, and and it, that's what runs uh, farmers out of business, and then you end up with bigger farmers. And then, if since prices have been below full costs, now full costs assume you got paid a wage equivalent, but you didn't make any money on your investments in land, machinery, and facilities, such as for corn. Okay, uh, we've been below full cost most of the time for eight major crops and more since uh, since 1981. Hmm. We had three crops above for a while recently with, you know, corn and soybeans and so forth. Right. But then milk since 1993. So we've been below full costs. And uh, how, do you, how do you survive in farming that way? And the answer is, oh, well, you have a lot of all-farm income. You've got tax write-offs. Uh, got a lot of great tax write-offs in farming. So uh, you're going to get bigger farms because the richer have the tax. You know, they want those tax write-offs. Farms got great tax write-offs. Yeah. And that's a dilemma for farmers. You, you're not making enough money, and then you need a tax write-off. But then the tax write-off is going to help the rich okay. four so, times more. So how does uh, how does the how does Trump's era NAFTA, the the, the new NAFTA, play into that? Well, it, it's just uh, you know, it's just free free trade based on a free market principle that yeah. uh, I mean it, that causes overproduction and cheap prices. Yeah. So it was it's, was it's, was Trump never really sincere about addressing? I mean, he was never really sincere about getting rid of NAFTA. It was a campaign ploy, and now we're seeing that uh, he's basically accomplished that campaign promise with a, with a re, uh, you know, tweaking it so that it, it continues to accomplish the same thing, and that is continued, you know, yeah. the same the same gen, gen, the same direction in agriculture. I mean, the other side of it, of course, is manufacturing and the theory that well, with this new approach, uh, we're going to be seeing more jobs come back to the U.S. that went overseas during NAFTA. Do you buy that at all? Uh, look, if I could just say this. Sure. Uh, you were talking in, in the earlier half about mainstream media. Right. Okay. And there's nothing in mainstream media about the issues I'm talking about. 
uh, oh, I know for, that. for the farm side. I know that. But, <laughs> but also, in terms of uh, – now, what was I going to say on this? Uh, I lost my train of thought here. Yeah. Go uh, well, ahead. That, that, you know, that, again, that NAFTA um, – was was uh, very unpopular with labor unions because it sent a lot of jobs overseas. Yeah, uh, it was popular with corn farmers. <laughs> uh, no, it wasn't. Well, the ones. Well, okay. The, no, it the, wasn't. Okay, the yeah. big, the bigger Here's ones. Here's what I was like going to say. Here's okay. what I'm going to say. What you hear in mainstream media is only the minority. What have, you all have long been a minority of farmers who agree with agribusiness. Okay, that's well, yeah. that's what I meant too. But and, okay. and, yeah, that that was the point I was going to make. So if you if you look back, one good example is in in the nineteen late nineteen eighties with Farm Aid uh, money, the found, Farm Aid you know foundation, they they put on the Farm Aid Congress. We had caucuses in forty eight states, uh, all over. I went to one of the caucuses. And and to put together resolutions and planks and so forth. And one of the things they said, we are against free trade, free markets and free trade. We're against all that. We don't believe in it. And that's what farmers said. Gathering together, had more than 1,000 delegates down in St. Louis okay. on this. That was, so, that was when? There have also been surveys. That was in about 1986. Okay. There have also been a number of polls and surveys of things where people have supported the kind of things I'm talking about. Farmers have supported right. the kind of things I'm talking about, you know, sometimes by as much as 75%, sometimes by maybe more like 60%. So why, why is corporate media so opposed to this conversation? Uh, well, well, uh, well it ruin uh, there's their plenty advertising. Yeah, I was going to say ruin their advertising. Yeah, there's power yeah. companies. There's tre- yeah. tremendous advertising. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Huh. And and uh, there's not much, not much foundation money helping the family farm over. There's not much of anything. And and there's uh, we have a new food movement. That's a, farmers need to be told that there's a food movement and it's against cheap food and it's against cheap corn. Right. Problem and, is, and, problem is they think that cutting subsidies for farmers. And going to a free market will give you. And part of the problem is prices. people are strapped these days. Uh, wages uh, for most people have uh, not seen any kind of real growth, right. and so more expensive food uh, is harder to afford. Right, right. Usually, uh, the family farm owners had uh, big increases in food stamps uh, along with our farm bill program. And uh, but our basic argument is, if we need to subsidize people's food, why should farmers have to subsidize it? In other words, why should f- farmers have to be underpaid below the cost of production mm. on an ongoing basis? And then most of them have been run out of business since 1953. Most yeah. have been run out of fi- two-thirds. And well, almost all the black farmers run out of business. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, we've, we've talked about that on this program, too. That, that's, uh, you know, it just, it just um, you know, it's particularly unconscionable when we've seen solutions that worked or that worked better. And that we only recently abandoned those, <laughs> right? And so, uh, well, I, I don't know how to re how to how to, how to re. Again, I, I think um, this is why finding new ways of communicating and networking and dialoguing is so important because we're not going to have these conversations in the corporate, you know, newspaper or in the TV monopolies. I mean, and and especially on the on commercial radio. I mean, this this you know, there are a handful of stations that are open to. Uh, this kind of dialogue, but you won't find that on iHeart's network. <laughs> you know, we're very Curious thankful. Network. I, I um, am, my, and many are th- very thankful to you, Ed, for having shows like this very thing on here uh, to talk about this. So, a, a quick, we only have about a minute left, Brad. So, a quick takeaway: what what do we want to challenge people to do relevant to farm issues, particularly with the farm bill coming up? Uh, what, what's what's your what's your call to action on this? Better learn the farm justice side. The the uh, the fair price issue and the need for price floors 
because you don't need any subsidies with that, and it frees up all kinds of money for all kinds of other uses. It'll help everybody, you know, except for that very, you know, they talk about the, what, 1%, 2%. That, mm. Yeah. Uh, it helps the vast so, majority, and it's a, it saves a lot of government money, and yet we make a profit on exports, and we're no longer dumping on Mexico and running their farmers out of business and so on and so forth. So if you send me some links, I'll share those with our audience. Okay, I think, great. I mean, basically, your challenge is for people to get more educated about this. Listen yeah. to the farm justice farmers of the okay. Family Farm Movement. Great. Brad, thanks for joining us. Brad Wilson has been our guest the second half of this program. Uh, thanks, to folks, for tuning in to today's Fallon Forum. Uh, if you're listening on the community-owned stations, stay tuned. We'll have a little more conversation for you after a short break here. Again, thanks again to Lorena, 1260 AM, uh, to Sherry Hardina, my, uh, my uh, production assistant, and to all the folks who took the time to be a part of this program. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. All right, so Iowa's very, very famous congressman, Steve King, has done it again. Uh, he just, You know, I think Steve King is probably the most honest politician in America. You know, you know there, there's probably a whole bunch of um, white supremacists out there in, in legislative chambers and even in the U.S. Congress. But with, with Steve King, you don't have to guess. He lets you know where he stands. And for most recently, and for no reason that I can gather in terms of it making any sense in terms of policy or politics, he's coming to he's uh, coming to the defense of he's he's praising a Canadian uh, politician, a candidate for mayor in in Toronto, who is is out there, who's who is far right wing and is a known white nationalist. Uh, this candidate is Faith Goldie, which is a great name, by the way. Uh, Faith Goldie. Uh, she's running for mayor in Toronto, as I said, and she is. Um, she uh, talks about being, quote, pro-rule of law, pro-make Canada safe again, pro-balanced budget, and pro-Western civilization. Now, no, I should say, that's Steve King talking about her. I mean, she says that stuff too, but... but and, and even says, he says... He talks about the rule of law, making Canada safe, pro-balanced budget, and best of all, that's King saying, best of all, she's pro-Western civilization and a fighter for our values. Okay, this is, from, this is from the guy who also said that we can't save our civilization with other people's babies. I mean, I, you know, I know a lot of people in the 4th District. I know hundreds and hundreds of people in Steve King's district. I don't know a single one of them that subscribes to this kind of racism. I, 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 you know, they're good people. You know, I don't know whether they dismiss this stuff or <laughs> maybe they look the other way because in person Steve King seems to be a nice guy. But I don't, I don't know, I, I don't know how he gets away with this. You know, Faith Goldie has even claimed this is the again the candidate for mayor that Steve King is praising. She's even claimed that Canada is undergoing a quote white genocide. Wow, way to turn that around. I mean, we all know, if we're honest, that the settlement of this continent involved a, an unprecedented attempt at genocide, which in, some, in the case of some indigenous nations was successful, but in the case of many, um, merely decimated the population. <laughs> uh, you know, and to, un, to, to kind of uh, somehow associate with what, with, 
with any pushback against the white majority, to call that a genocide is, um, is so wrong and so, and so um, dismissive of what really has happened in this continent. So Goldie, um, you know, her, her, uh, her, white, her, 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 extreme, her extreme credentials are pretty well on display. Again, like King, she's not very subtle. She's out there. She's honest, I guess. She has appeared on a neo-Nazi white supremacist website called the Daily Stormer. Uh, she was also fired. <laughs> she was fired for being too extreme. And you would think, oh, what, what, what reasonable organization fired her? Well, it was a Canadian right-wing anti-Muslim website <laughs> fired her from the site for being too extreme. She's too extreme for right-wing anti-Muslim people. Wow. And this is the gal that Steve King is coming to the defense of. Um, she has also saluted the white supremacists who showed up in Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, I mean, even, even Donald Trump didn't go that far. He said, well, there's violence on many sides. Um, she actually praised the white supremacists who, who um, staged that rally in Charlottesville that killed a woman. Wow. Um, she's called for evacuating, quote, all illegal migrants from Toronto's shelter system by bus to the prime minister's official residence or the nearest jurisdiction that will take them. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess that's not a serious campaign promise, but um, it does tell you where she stands. So in, um, so why, why, would, I don't, why would Steve King... Why would he praise this woman? I mean, it, 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 it's a different country. Nothing to do with Iowa. Nothing to do with the U.S. She's a fringe candidate. In fact, um, a lawyer in British Columbia, Michael McCubbin, he, he posted a tweet saying, quote, up here, Goldie is considered a fringe candidate with largely maniacal views who doesn't get invited to debates. We're doing and will do just fine without her. You might want to follow our example. <laughs> uh He's responding to Steve King. <laughs> They're ignoring her up there. Steve King down here is praising her. Go figure. So, you know, I, I don't, this isn't the first time, of course, that Steve King has weighed in on the virtues of a foreign uh, extreme politician. Uh, Geert Wilders, he's a far-right uh, Dutch politician. He's the, uh, the head of the Dutch Party for Freedom. Uh, King praise how wonderful he was a while back and got, you know, got a, a bunch of um, criticism for that. So King is, uh, King is coming, coming under, again, he's, he, he does this regularly. He, 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 he's, he, again, he's very honest. He says what he feels. <laughs> and he displays that he's a white supremacist, that he's a racist, uh, uh, that he has no concept of how to uh, operate in a pluralistic society. Uh, and yet he still maintains his position of power, not just within Congress, but within the Iowa Republican Party. He is the co-chair for Governor Kim Reynolds' re-election campaign. Now, um, you know, Reynolds has said in the past that while she doesn't agree with King on everything, she, um, she respects him and blah, blah, something, something very, very lame and, and accommodating. So... Um, you know, I, I don't. I don't know how he continues to get away with this. 
And I don't know why he – I don't know why. I mean, I'm just thinking in terms of policy. There's nothing that's going to benefit your ability to enact good policy here in the U.S. by praising Faith Goldie, the extremist, racist, white supremacist, Canadian fringe candidate who is being no ignored by most people in Canada. Uh, there's nothing to be gained policy-wise. There's certainly nothing to be gained politically. I mean, King's already got enough baggage. Why does he keep piling on? It's not, it's not like somebody else is piling on him. He's piling on himself. And it just it is, it is kind of astounding. So um, King recently was quoted as saying, um, uh, so, so they should be astute enough by now, meaning people, uh, people who criticize them, they should be astute enough by now with all the social media out there not to take the first bait that has been run in front of them. I'm not even quite sure what that means. King says, quote, if people know me, if they go back to the original quote, read it in context, and then we will find out that it is not only based upon good, solid, fundamental, constitutional Christian philosophy, philosophy, but it is also there with a good heart. That, that says nothing. That means absolutely nothing. There is nothing there that makes any sense at all in the context of this conversation. <laughs> so, okay. Um, the only additional thing there that's, that's of any value, I think, is that, is that King makes it clear that that Christian philosophy, I'm not quite sure what that is, as I regard Christianity as a religion, uh, that Christian philosophy is what underlies uh, his foundation, his political uh, and, 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 uh, and intellectual foundation. So, yeah, I, I don't know where to go with this. Um, you know, King is certainly no, I mean, he's not being shunned by the Republican Party. He attended a, a rally. Uh, in fact, there was a rally in Council Bluffs just a week and a half ago, I think. And uh, tr Trump, Donald Trump showed up. There were, they say, about 10,000 people showed up. And uh, King was there. And, you know, Trump said to King, or said about King, he said, quote, I wish you could get a little more conservative. He said, King may be the world's most conservative human being. So I don't even know what conservative means anymore because I know plenty of people who have wear the conservative political badge who have reasonable ideas who would not subscribe to this kind of craziness or make these kinds of uh, off-the-cuff remarks about foreign politicians who are total fringe candidates and, and out-of-the-closet out, you know, racists. I don't understand where that's coming from. And again, that's not conservative. Conservatism has a reasonable history. Although you, you may disagree with the details, the policies, there is some reasonable stuff to subscribe to if you are a, you know, a, a traditional American conservative politician. You know, so what Trump's doing here to misuse the word conservative to describe King is problematic, as is King himself. Anyway, wow, enough of that. Ed Fallon with you here, folks, on the Fallon Forum.